Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. This week, Claire Gilbert talks to Gareth Higgins about her book, Miles to Go Before I Sleep, Letters on Hope, Death and Learning to Live. It's published by Hodder and Stoughton and is available from the Church Times bookshop for the reduced price of 14 99 After being diagnosed with myeloma, an incurable cancer of the blood. Claire began writing to her siblings and a group of close friends about what she was going through. In a review of the book for the Church Times, Caroline Charters writes, This is not a book about dying, but rather a book about how facing death enables us truly to live. You can read an extract from the book and the review at churchtimes.co.uk. This conversation was recorded on Saturday at an online event organised by the Church Times Festival of Faith and Literature, entitled Finding Meaning. Other speakers were the journalist and broadcaster Sarah Sands, talking about her book The Interior Silence, Gareth Higgins, speaking about his forthcoming book How Not to Be Afraid, and Brian McLaren, who spoke about his latest book, Faith After Doubt. You can buy access to a recording of the event at faithandliterature.himsam.co.uk. The conversation features occasional strong language. I should actually just before I start, just to give some context, I should explain that um, the book began as a series of letters written to dear friends and, and family, not intended for publication at all, uh, in the form of a diary. So I asked these uh, people who love me if they would be willing to read what I wrote about what was happening to me, because writing about it was the way I was going to make sense of it. Uh, so, so what what you'll hear is 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 the diary. Uh, it, it turned out that when it came to the decision to publish, I didn't edit it that much. So it's quite it, it ended up being quite a raw read. So Friday, 8th of March, I have the result. I do have myeloma, an incurable, as it turns out, cancer of the blood. My approximate diag- prognosis with a scientific understanding current treatments, my own age and state of health, which is reasonably good, is that I will die of the condition in about 10 years, though that is very likely to be extended given the amount of research and development in the field. I feel strange, strangely distant from the diagnosis, as if it is happening, yes, to me, but I'm also someone else looking on rather quizzically a shock which I am probably reeling from, though I feel quite steady. My body is trembling a bit though. I can't really think about anything else. The newspaper doesn't arrest my attention. Yes, reeling is probably the word for it, but inwardly I do believe I am strong. I keep thinking of the positives. In 10 years I can do a great deal. It's not such a short time as to paralyze me. Sean, my partner, is relieved that I will, after all, probably outlive him, which is only fair. So many things I don't have to worry about. Dying alone and incontinent as a discarded old lady in a home. Not having children means there are no descendants whose futures I will want to see. I don't have to worry very much about money, providing I keep my health. The clinical nurse specialist, the most lovely woman called Grace, said I should think of myeloma and indeed a lot of cancers now, as a chronic condition, not a fatal one. Of course, it is ultimately fatal in the way that life is. It's only a bit quicker. I wouldn't want to spend the next 10 years feeling ill. 
So that helps me think about how I respond to treatment choices. I won't be beating this cancer or fighting it. It isn't a war with a winner and a loser. It's my condition. It's part of me in my blood, my blood, which is my life force, which brings to all parts of my body all that it needs to keep functioning. I love my blood and I don't want to feel ill. I asked Dr. Mary, the haematologist who broke the news, what I should tell my loved ones. She suggested telling them that I have a cancer which is incurable, but treatable. So let's think of the treatment as something additional that is necessary to life, like eating and bathing and sleeping, except for the fucking side effects. I do not want to get fat on steroids. I am going to remain beautiful till I die. The eyebrows are a good start. I had them tattooed when I heard I might have cancer. And dying early helps, of course. I mean, choose a way to die, not a stroke, not with a body that bit by bit is falling apart, not under a bus so my loved ones have no time to get used to it. I'm going to imagine I have 10 years. What will I do with those 10 years? I will ride and swim in the sea. I will wear beautiful clothes and good makeup. I will take care of my skin and my hair and my feet. I will read the books I love, some Dickens again, I think, to begin with, because he brought to birth in me my love of words and my respect for them. I will listen to music, go to concerts. I will sing. I will have piano lessons. I will write and write and write. I will write poetry. I will contemplate. I will learn to contemplate. I will practice contemplation. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking actually an echo of the conversation we've just had with Sarah about limitations and freedom. Mm-hmm. And um, it feels like uh, in, in, in typical circumstances, people might feel it's almost a trivialization of the experience that you're having for me to even ask you about that. But you have done something that uh, few people do, which is that you've written a book and have invited people into this story. And so with with uh, it's it's with respect, but also I feel like there's an invitation there from you to explore this question of limitations and freedom and uh, ask you to to share what what does that call forth from you? Well, it's uh, it doesn't half concentrate the mind to be told you're going to die. Of course, we all know in theory we're going to die, but but actually to be told by someone who knows what they're talking about <laughs> that you have this condition and it's a condition that's through you because it's a cancer of the blood, you see. It's not yeah. like a tumour. It's something that's just flowing around you with this thing that you that you need for life. So it really concentrates the mind. And I can remember, and, and I write about this, the crunchy tang of an apple, the mm-hmm. blossom, the... Um, on horseback, riding has been one of my great life givers uh, on, on horseback and, and, the, and the rolling bosomy hills of, of Sussex uh, with views all the way to the sea uh, 
and the cat uh, uh, the catkins coming out on the willow and so forth so it really wakes you up to what is knowing that it's going to come to an end and someone said um uh, i can't remember who uh, you don't know a thing until you say goodbye to it mm. um, it's a, it was in a song i think um uh, uh, you don't know a thing until you say goodbye to it when it's going to be taken away from you then you then you embrace the thing you draw it to you because you realize your love for it and 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 so much of this experience and what i've tr really tried to um convey through writing it is is the feelings that it, that it invokes in you not not theology not working it out not but what it feels like and the sense that you make of the feeling of what of what's going on and the mm. feeling of mortality does bring you to life like, like nothing else mm -hmm, it's a mm -hmm. wonderful paradox i mean it's a wonderful wonderful gift and that's why i felt that really uh this cancer well this cancer needs to be made to be a source of joy not of bitterness through the writing i'm going to make it a source of joy not of bitterness mm -hmm. and then then it then if that's a battle you know then that that's the it, it, it's not a battle that's the wrong word for it but that's what i'm going to try and do so say more about it being a source of joy so uh, going back to the blood the sense of it being in my blood so one of my contemplations it's an it's really drawing on the uh, ignatian pra ignatian practice which i've uh, developed having having done the ignatian spiritual exercises which are not for the faint-hearted believe me uh you you i imagine my way into my blood and I imagine the blood flowing through my body and I'm flowing with it and I'm actively loving my blood. And uh, and sometimes I, I, I imagine Christ flowing through the blood and I and I say to my blood or let it be said to my blood, you're fine. You're brilliant. You don't need to overproduce proteins, which mm. is what the cancer is. Just be, you're wonderful. I love you. I love you. I love you. And feel, but feeling it, not saying it really. And it's very interior and it's very physical. It is the, it's in this body, my body, that this contemplation is, is taking place. Deep sparks of joy come in that. And, and, and um, the absolute worst time, I, I, I should say that my suffering of the last few years has been all from the treatment, not from the cancer itself, because it was caught before it any, it started getting, it, getting to work on my body thank heavens um but the treatment is is awful and they try and hit you really really hard at the beginning to send it into deep remission because again it because it can't be cured okay. and um one of the bits of treatment i had was a stem cell transplant and it's a an autologist stem cell transplant so they take my own stem cells after a course of treatment to take my own stem cells harvest them and then they uh, they give me this drug called melphalan which is based on the mustard gas that was used in the second world war and no human being should give that to any other human being it is utterly horrific it kills all your bone marrow which is where the new stem cells are going to go um to, to be transplanted uh, and it also kills all the bacteria in your gut from your mouth to your backside so i was vomiting and had diarrhea and i had the most awful sores in my mouth and the, a vile taste and a, a mucus which meant it was incredibly hard to swallow anything or to or anything at all and yet i had to to keep my strength up to let the transplant work 
so I was really, really sick and ill for many days. It, it really many, many days. And uh, and I would lie there and you couldn't just lie and, you know, let it happen. It was it was active in you, this this vile thing that was killing everything off in order to make way for the transplant. But right at the very, very heart of that absolute weakness, absolute powerlessness was joy. I want to ask how how was it that joy was at the the center of that well what an excellent question what i can tell you is that it's there yeah and i'm not going to theorize about it <laughs> i'm going to tell you that it's there I can, a, a really huge influence uh, on me was julian of norwich who yeah. i my doctorate on her and in fact completed it not that long before the diagnosis and she has been my companion all the way through so there's a lot of Julian in the book and the great thing about Julian is that she speaks about what she sees she's a brilliant theologian she's a very nuanced very uh, accomplished theologian mm. but in her language she speaks of what she sees and she refuses to deny she's unflinching about what she sees and indeed facing her own suffering she herself was ill and uh, and that's really what this book is. It's a book that you feel rather than read, actually. Mm -hmm. Gareth, you answer the question how. I can just tell you. <laughs> well, well no, I, I, in our lives. If, if I couldn't, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last thing you said. Can you say again? It's for us to find discover in our lives. Well, maybe, well, is that the question? Is that the question? It, it, you know, it seems to me that so here's the thing I know about Julian of Norwich and everybody knows about Julian of Norwich and you've written a PhD on Julian of Norwich. So, you know, a whole lot more. But the thing that I know is all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And uh, a friend of mine, a spiritual director, friend of mine who, who talks to me about you will always say this no matter what's going on. She will text me and she'll say all should be well and all should be well and all manner of things should be well. Um, it occurred to me recently unless I've uh, been misquoting her all my life, she didn't say all is well. She said all shall be well. And perhaps you'd like to comment on that because I know that it can sometimes be misused as a way of saying to people, oh, chin up, yeah. you know, or look on the bright side. You're doing something that's far more profound than just look on the bright side, although it is that. It definitely yeah. is that. It's just I that the guess. bright side is more is more metaphysically real than just you're not suffering as much as somebody else is suffering. It's certainly not the kind of unfair, you know, the, the relative comparison that many of us were aware of as children, eat your dinner because they're starving children and you should feel bad if you don't eat your dinner. So, it, yeah. It's the other side of the pain. That's the joy. It's the other side of the pain. You have to go through it. Yeah. You can't around it you can't deny it i was brought up uh, with a very almost cult like uh, focus of philosophy of eastern mysticism mm -hmm. and um, which which taught that what we were in truth was all knowledge consciousness and bliss there was one consciousness mm. which the whole universe and therefore anything which wasn't that wasn't real and so you develop right. this practice of detachment from from the mess mm -hmm. Now, now, Christianity saved me from that because mm -hmm. in the 
is the opposite of that. Um, and the and the the pain of the passion, and this is something that Julian goes through. Um, she mm. actually asks to experience the pain of the passion, mm -hmm. and it's so bad. It, it's absolutely a terrible uh, uh, for her, terrible pain for her. So instead of trying to push the pain away, instead of trying to say it's not really there and I'm all right <laughs> mm -hmm. and I'm maintaining my detached bliss, this kind of Eastern idea, uh, with with a frown, you know, that's, that's the trouble. It's you know there there was no love in it either. This this mm -hmm. philosophy, and we sort of pretended we were detached. It was bollocks, frankly. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but so here here we are. Here's the pain, and and of course you take what you can to alleviate the pain. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting for one minute you should suffer un uh, unnecessarily. Of course, take the things, but the fact of the matter is there is pain, and you walk towards it, and you walk carefully and slowly through it and it's only then and Julian does this and it's only then that you can have some feeling some sense of what she means by all shall be well and um I, I just one ad addition to that um I read recently a, a vicar said what's was asked what's your philosophy of life or something or what's what, what's the thing you would tell others what's the advice you give others she said I would say this um, it'll be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. And actually, I think that's a really good interpretation of that statement by Julian. Right. Lovely. Would you tell us about your day job? Westminster Abbey Institute. Goodness. Well, that's um, very, that's very extraordinary. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, yes, so we founded it in 2013. So Westminster Abbey sits on Parliament Square with um, the Houses of Parliament to its left on the east side, the Treasury and all of Whitehall, all the civil service opposite. And since 2009, the Supreme Court, the judiciary on the other side, so you have the legislature, the executive, the judiciary, and then this bloody great church on, on Parliament Square. So, so in a sense, the Institute was an answer to the question, what's Westminster Abbey uh, doing there? What's its offer to the public conversation. So I talked to people around Parliament Square and said, is there anything that Westminster Abbey can do um, that could be of, uh, of use to you that isn't being done perfectly well elsewhere? Because there's a lot of chat in Westminster, as you can imagine, lots of people commenting and, and mm -hmm. criticising and campaigning. And we didn't just want to add to that, nor did we want to be an apologist for faith in the public square either, I might say, because that was done, being done extremely well by Theos, among others. So anyway, well, the response that came from the politicians, the civil servants, the judges and others was there is something Westminster Abbey can do, which is to be a place of reflection where we can step back from uh, running around trying to rule and run the country and think about the good that we hope we're doing and want to do uh, and reflect more deeply about on it to reconnect with our vocation to public service, which is easily forgotten, and to recalibrate our moral compass or uh, resensitize our moral antennae and of course that's what Westminster Abbey can do so we created this institute and it involves public programs on things like integrity in public life truth in public life the responsibilities of democracy the nature of power as a politician or a civil servant or a judge or a journalist yeah. we have a we have private conversations as well where people can really say what they feel quite deeply in a safe space and we also have a fellows program of younger public servants from lots of different walks of public service life, um, about 20 of them each year. And they become very 
close to each other and we work over the year with them. We've got about 100 fellows now. And they stay in touch with the institutes, the Westminster Abbey Institute Fellows or WAIFs. Mm. It, it, it seems to me that one of the things that the, the book is about and your journey is about is uh, learning with uncertainty. And it also seems to me that people in public life probably need to learn that or be assisted with learning that maybe more than anybody else, because what we, what we, the public, when we're functioning as members of the public, are demanding unfairly, I think, of many people in public life, particularly politicians, is certainty. Tell us that you know. Say yes or say no. Don't ever, you know, that the, the, the worst thing a politician can say is, I don't actually know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, so um, has, has this journey uh, for yourself and through the book been of assistance in working with public uh, pe people who are in public life around that question of uncertainty? It's a really, really important point. So th this cancer, it's incurable, right? So I'm, st mm. I'm still being treated, Gareth. I'm still, I've got until July. It will be two and a half years of treatment, chemotherapy every week, one week off, 18 mm. times after the stem cell transplant, which itself followed a whole series of quite punishing chemotherapy. And it's been going on and on and on. And I am desperate for it to finish. I am so mm. fed up of the sickness, of the of being bound to this cycle. But I have to keep saying to myself, the treatment comes to an end in July. At some point, this is going to come back. The most you can hope for, and this would be rare, this is very rare, is that you live long enough with it in remission for you to dive something else right. before it comes back. But most people, it comes back. Sometimes it comes back within months. Sometimes mm. you have a few years. Um, it's been given the best possible chance with this horrible treatment that I've had. But the fact of the matter is it hasn't gone away. It's there, but it's just too low to measure at the moment. So I have to live with that uncertainty. I have to. I cannot latch my hope to beating the cancer. This language mm -hmm. is not news with cancer. I cannot mm -hmm. do that. So where do I find my peace of mind? Um, it has to be somehow underneath that uncertainty or mm -hmm. with that uncertainty. It, I mean, I express it as finding my peace as the world cannot give because the world cannot give me that peace. And so to our public servants, yes, to find... Now, it, we'll talk about this in your session, that in, unimpactable bit of you, mm. the place where you, and it never goes away, like the joy at the heart of the weakness. It's there to find a way of returning to that and returning to that. And that's the discipline I have to impose on myself, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. turning to it and rest, trying to rest with it so that you can, you talk, was it, was it, uh, ne nexus you spoke about it with sarah in the last session stillness in the turmoil um mm. that, that that cell um archbishop angelos's cell julian of norwich's cell is there in one's heart to be returned to and returned to and to be mm. practiced at that and that's certainly something to teach the the um the public servants but but i i want to say something else as well because there's a there's a there's a dynamic here um you can't just and i and i found this question early on with the diagnosis and as the treatment began you cannot just sit down under the sentence that you've been given you can't just say all right I'm going to die and be peaceful with that 
actually, although it you kind of want that. And there's this cat and mouse game that cancer plays or cancer treatments mm. play. Mm -hmm. with the hope, and then it doesn't work, or there's another treatment gives you hope, gives you hope for a bit longer, but it doesn't work. But you can't just say, well, I'm just not going to go there. There's something about the will to life, which was the other thing that was at my heart, that weakness, the will to life. And it was mm. it's an active thing and it's mm. a disturbing thing. And that is essential mm. too. And as our, our public servants try to rule and run the country through this pandemic and, and, and the new questions that are arising for us and the sense of uncertainty, there needs to be a, a real looking forwards too. Uh, um, and when I talk about cancer being a source of joy, not of bitterness, you might say, make the pandemic a source of joy, not a bit, not of bitterness. Mm -hmm. Find the newness in there, which will be mm -hmm. life giving. In that thing, in that very thing, which seems like the worst thing that could have happened to us, you will find. And that's your challenge as a human being. And it's lively, it's disruptive, and it stops, can stop your peace of mind. It's dynamic. The newness and the trouble. Yeah, it, it makes me think that, you know, when the, when the pandemic was starting to gather pace, a friend of mine uh, posted on Facebook that he had uh, written a little uh, handwritten card and had delivered it to all the neighbors on his street saying, I'm sorry, it literally began with, I'm sorry it took a pandemic for me to reach out to you. Uh, because of course, like many people in the West, he didn't know his neighbors, they didn't know him, they hadn't spoken to each other before and said, uh, if you need any help, this my name is Bill, this is my phone number, call me if you know if you need to self-isolate and if you're if you're vulnerable, I'll go get groceries for you and I'll leave them on your doorstep. And uh, one of the neighbors he was leaving this for, he'd knocked the door and she uh, felt fear and did not want to answer the door uh, to a stranger. So he left the card on the doorstep and I think she sort of behaved ag aggressively toward him, sho shooed him away. Uh, and he went back home and he was feeling bad about this. But later that afternoon, she showed up at his house with some homemade jam and an apology just saying, hey, I was scared, I didn't know who you were, and now they know each other. And that seems to me to be a perfect example of the newness in the trouble, that without the trouble, they probably still would not have had a conversation yet. Uh, and, and Claire, if you'd like to read something more from the book. Uh, uh, sure, yes. To, let me, let me read a really lovely, lovely example of this joy so one of the things that we absolutely terrified about, particularly if you're a woman, is loss of hair, right? And um, I really, really didn't want to lose my hair. And most of the treatment, you don't lose your hair, but the stem cell transplant, you do. And as it turns out, in my case, the harvesting of stem cells, the, the chemotherapy I was given to grow more stem cells in my body before the harvesting um, uh, made my hair fall out. So here we go, Monday, 7th of October hanks of hair coming out in my hands in the bath and at the sink. More is on my head than is coming off, I keep muttering, my heart hammering as the ball of hair grows and grows. I didn't wash my hair yesterday. Would washing make things worse or just reveal the inevitable? This morning I have to wash it and my bath swims with hair. I, who cannot bear a single hair dallying in the bathroom or on my clothes or anywhere apart from people's heads, I, who am avid about clearing up my own hair mess in a bathroom, I am wading through hair. I am just as avid cleaning up now, but the task is Herculean. 
My Augean stable keeps filling up as more hairs fall from my head, catching my comb, settle in the sink. Hercules had a day. I have a train to catch. I don't know if I'm making things worse by washing it, but once I have started, I can't stop. I have to comb it out. I have to dress it. I'm as gentle as my shaking hands can be. Eventually it is done and it looks normal. You wouldn't notice, but I have hands full of hair to show Sean. He suggests an artist might make something of it. And we remember Mona Hatoum, whose enormous installations featured quantities of hair twisted and woven and turned into rope like a curtain. I like the metaphor, but hate the reality. I really dislike her work. I think of concentration camps and the use to which inmates' hair was put after their heads had been shaven. The only place for my great switch of hair is in the compost, making new life. I hope it does. I think this is a good rehearsal. It is such a shock. And if I have the stem cell transplant and it all falls out, I have had a taste of what it is like. It cannot be hidden, you see. Everything else I have gone through is on the inside. I can hide away during the sickness, put makeup and a smile on my face. I've enjoyed being told how well I look, defiant in the face of the challenge of cancer. But everyone will see the hair loss. And however quickly my friends will get used to how I look, the initial view is a shock, and for the general public, baldness on women is just weird. So my hair keeps falling out until finally, when I wash it, what little is left turns into a matted lump on top of my head. I can do nothing with it, nothing at all. Monday, 14th October. I look at myself in the mirror inquiringly. This tangle has precipitated the moment, but I am ready. Ready to shave it all off. I am to be shriven before I enter my anchor hold. Encouraged by Sean, who is rightly convinced that for this task I need a barber's shaver, not scissors, we enter a barber's in Newcomen Street near Guy's Hospital. I speak to the man at the desk who has a kind face. I'm not a gentleman, I say, but I have to shave my hair off because it's falling out anyway from chemotherapy. I have cancer. His face softens and he says, of course, and ushers me to a chair. I remove my cap and reveal the ruination of my head of hair. Sean sits in quiet attendance. Then this angel of a man gently, oh, so gently, shaves my head, carefully approaching the tangled knot, working his way over the contours of my scalp, leaving an inch of hair, which is mercifully still evenly distributed, a silver grey, revealing my head revealing me. I look at myself in the mirror and I see that I am fine. I am revealed and what is revealed is just fine. I don't mean the appearance of me exactly, more that with nothing covering me, nothing to hide behind or pretend with, entirely on show, I am nothing to be ashamed of. I feel as vulnerable as I have ever felt, but I am also strangely relieved and liberated. I am fine until a customer who has witnessed the proceedings while having his own prolific hair cut walks past me on his way out and says, you look even better than when you came in, more badass. And then I dissolve into tears and the beautiful angel, Al, quietly continues to give an artistic finish to my shaven head. We begin to speak to each other, 
I tell him a bit about my cancer. He tells me a bit about himself. He is Kurdish. His heart is breaking over what is happening to his people in northern Syria. He says Kurds are not safe even here. We are Muslims helping the West, he says. That makes us a target for those who think we are betrayers. We are in compassionate communion as Al carefully neatens my crop. What is happening to me is so utterly unimportant in the context of the continued destruction of his people. But the tender attention Al gives my unimportant hair is our place of communion. What I had dreaded with the deepest dread I had had in all this time since my cancer was diagnosed is become a transcendent experience in which I am attended by an angel of the first order. It is one of the best experiences of my life so far. I am profoundly blessed. Wow. Um, uh, almost, I, I feel like I want to have a minute's uh, pause and quiet just to take that in. Thank you for reading it. And I, I, I don't know if it costs you even now to, to read it. To people, and I, I know that when when I tell personal stories, there's a there's a cost to that too, and a and a benefit uh, as as well. But thank you for for what you just read. Um, the question, and this is a question from Sarah Sands, who who is uh, there's been a there's been a technological catastrophe that's pre preventing her being able to hear one of the things, but she's typed some questions here to because as she, um, she wants to participate and and uh, <clears throat> this question is about what helps and what doesn't help in terms of other people's responses to you uh, yeah. that you might offer as ad advice to yeah. anyone who encounters someone who is faced with a challenge uh, like the one you're facing what helps and what doesn't help right so it, it's much harder for the loved ones than it is for the one who's going through it. That was my first, pretty much first discovery. Because when you're going through it, you know what it is, right? Mm -hmm. But when you love the person who's going through it, you don't know what it is. You can't do all that much or you feel helpless. But what you can do is not go away. Just that, not go away. And my dear readers, the people to whom I wrote these letters, which ended up as this book, did me the greatest possible service by simply receiving what I wrote, because what it did was to bring out of me the writing that then helped me to make sense, to find joy. And the fact that people who loved me were reading it was the most important thing to me altogether, not the advice. Actually, there are times, do you know, when you get cancer, it doesn't matter what somebody says, it's the wrong thing. You know, someone said, oh, do you wake up in the night really, really afraid and worried? And I said, no. And she said, panicking? And I said, well, you know, funny thing. I hadn't thought of that. I'll try that tonight. <laughs> someone said, someone said, do you really have cancer? You know, you look so well. Surely you don't have cancer, do you? That made me absolutely furious. And I and lots and lots of um, advice on alternative you know, coffee enemas, that kind of thing. 
when when I'd given my trust to my allopathic doctors, and I know there's a whole conversation there, and I'm not at all immune to it, um, a conversation about how you how you meet your cancer with what treatments and, and things which are not chemotherapy and not poisonous. But this was this was terrible to hear. I needed I reared away from it. I needed to really be allowed to focus on. And so I said to my dear readers, please don't send me advice unless I specifically ask for it. But I've got to say something else about this too, Gareth, which is there are times when it doesn't matter what you say, it's going to be the worst, the wrong thing. And then there are times when it doesn't matter what you say, it's the right thing. And it depends on the state of the victim, of the sufferer. So it's really, really difficult. The most important thing is the love, not going away, listening thing. Not saying, oh, I know what you're going through, or my mum died of cancer. And I know well, I've said this so many times myself to people, because uh, she did, and so did my father, I, I, as if to say, I understand your pain. And you don't. We don't understand each other's pain. But what we can just do is say, well, I'm here. I'm just here. You know, it seems one of the things that I think is really important uh, about your book is that it's unsparing. And you've already alluded to that regarding treatment and pain. But it's not it, it's not in the kind of attention seeking victim uh, seeking to validate your own your own pain. I'm sorry. What did you say? Good. I oh, said. Good. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it has been thinking about an experience. I had in, in interviewing clergy here in Ireland about sectarianism, and uh, and I was I remember asking a, a minister, you know, how do people talk about sectarianism, Northern Irish sectarianism, in your congregation? And he said to me, "You've got to understand, we don't even talk about cancer." And what he meant was, when somebody uh, got cancer. It would be quietly, it would be like so and so's not, you know, they're not they're not well at the moment. And because there was the fear of even naming the word. And you kind of gone right to the <laughs> the other extreme. Now, my guess from this conversation and one previous conversation that we've had, that that might have been something already built into your personality, that you're that you're a kind of person who doesn't beat around the bush and doesn't use euphemism or innuendo. My guess is that this journey has pushed you even further there. And do you think that this might be universally beneficial, that we should just do away with the euphemism and innuendo about illness, about pain, about suffering? And that, uh, that to fully name these things is part of the process of managing and transforming them. I, I do think that, Gareth, and, and I particularly think that about death. And it, honestly, it's only by speaking about these things for what they are and trying to describe your pain for what it is and not pushing it away that, that it becomes in the right way familiar so that it's possible then to speak more about it. Because the fact of the matter is we will all face suffering. We will all die. And, and people we love will face suffering and they will die. So if we can allow it to be part of who we are, understand that it's part of who we are and love it for being what it what it gives to us, mm. then we're bound to be a healthier people. Mm. Uh, but, I, but I do also recognize we have to be gentle about this and, and kind about it. And I know that my way is quite strong for people. And I do know that some of my readers, because they told me, had to stop reading from time to time because they just couldn't bear it. I was, I was, uh, I am, 
strong about saying it how it is. So there is a kindness that needs to come with that and a tenderness and a gentleness. You're the spectre at the feast, you know, uh, you say you have cancer. It's a real shock for people to hear that. Actually, when I when all my hair fell, fell out um, and, it, and then I had this, I had this, actually it was wonderful. It's a wonderful crew cut that Al gave me. Um, I said to my dear readers, look, when if we meet each other, um, what I because I quite like this. I always like doing it to other people too. When their hair's really short, I like brushing it like this. You know that fuzzy brushy thing. I said, when you see me, I'm going to do this, and then you can brush my head like that. I'd like that, like you're stroking me. But what it also means is that you your face can do what it needs to do. Mm. So when I, when you first see me and I first see you, there'll be there'll be shock. There'll be something on your face that you won't be able to do anything about. You need a nanosecond for that to just for you to familiarize yourself with how I look now, um, um, because I know that's what you want to do. And I, so I won't have the pain of seeing your pity and your shock. Um, I'll just have the lovely stroking. And then when I look up, our faces will say what they want to say, which is, I love you. <laughs> the gentleness, yes, drop the euphemisms, but be gentle as we do so. Um, we just have two or three minutes left. A couple of questions from uh, the comments here. Uh, one from Simon. Um, thank you so much for this, Claire. It's so thoughtful and encouraging. Uh, how do you find the experience of serious suffering impacts upon your prayer life? <laughs> uh, and then the, and one, and one more question after that, but if you'd like yeah. to speak to that question. Brilliant. Thank, thanks, Simon. Thanks for that question. So um, uh, it made it very, very real and alive. And, mm -hmm. I, and there was, I wasn't angry with God, I, uh, but I, I kind of put, him, put God to work uh and explored and went deep with a with a with a passion and an intensity and a focus more than i'd ever really felt before this sense that the healing that i could do was through this so a contemplative prayer became i mean i've been meditating since i was 10 i was initiated into mantra meditation by this eastern philosophy thing when i was 10 so meditation has always been a part of my life, but I really put it to work now and made it much more consciously a, a, a bodily thing. Um, but the other thing I, I want to say about my prayer and how it's changed is that I'm listening much more, mm. not not speaking. I, 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 I'm, I'm better at asking for help, <laughs> saying what it is I need help with, and then just listening mm. and, and trying just to not put words into the silence trying not to get distracted. That's obviously something that happens, but just try to listen, listen, listen for a pin to drop. Like that. <laughs> Last question um, from Christine. How can we encourage a mindset in hospitals and more generally perhaps that attention to the spiritual is at least as important as physical and emotional well-being? Well, uh, among my dear readers are some clinicians, and um, and I've given the book to some some of the nurses and and other doctors who who, who aren't dear readers uh, to try and say, look, this is what it feels like uh, as the as the patient, um, and this is what really really helps me. Um, I mean, they do have to do their job. I think I think that's that's important to to acknowledge that in a sense their prayer their work their hope their intention is all geared through uh, focused through 
what they have the, physically what they have to do to do for you i mean i think it is growing in understanding i th i i think death is the is the clue somehow here that um in a sense all treatment is palliative we're all going to die so 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 treatment shouldn't you know you shouldn't see death as a failure you're not saving lives so much as making them livable and as we understand better so it's really important to me that the treatment that i that i have to have again if the myeloma comes back is the sort of treatment i can live with so that i can live a full rich spiritual life with because it's very hard to be spiritual when you're actually in pain that's that's true um although you know there are moments um but but uh this this understanding that that the, that the clinical care is is for life not against death um would, would be helpful but but we're just talking about this amongst ourselves how you actually pass that flow that understanding and that feeling into the institutions is another question altogether patients speak about it if you're a patient speak about it tell the doctor what you need tell the doctor what you need that's really important. we tend to behave ourselves before doctors and tell them what we think they want to hear um, and we need to say better and 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 actually there was certainly there was one one all my doctors have been amazing but there was one dr nathan uh, neil rabin at uclh the stem cell transplant doctor who really paid attention to this he really listened when i said i need to have communion uh, please tell the chaplain to come and visit me uh, he really listened Mm. He's a practicing Jew, so mm. perhaps he understood. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you for giving us the opportunity to listen to you. Um, your book, Miles <clears throat> to Go Before I Sleep, Letters on There You Go, Letters on Hope, uh, Death and Learning to Live is a wonder. And uh, uh, again, I hope everybody here will get uh, a, a, a copy of the book. Uh, it has so much to say about things that we're all going to face in our own way, perhaps just in a different time frame from each other. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.